Thanks for listening to this episode of the companion podcast to AmericanFounding.org. Following up last week's episode about the alternative plans that had been offered early at the Constitutional Convention, the Virginia plan, often referred to as the Large States Plan, and the New Jersey plan, which was the response to it, sometimes called the Small States Plan, with the debate really focusing on this issue of representation. There was never a question that there should be representation. There will be representation. You, you can't have a Republican form of government without representation of the people or the states. There must be representation of individuals and or entities in the government in order for it to be Republican. The Virginia plan proposed to answer this issue with representation based on population. So the representation that each state would get in Congress would be based on the population of the state, which obviously would give an advantage to states with larger populations. Now, in response to this, there's the New Jersey plan, which we said is the small states plan, and that's because it was based around the idea that each state should be represented equally in Congress. So picking up where we left off, we're starting on June 20th of 1787, and really for about the next five weeks, the structure of Congress, that is, will it be one chamber or two chambers? How will those chambers, if there's more than one, how will, how will their membership be determined? Will it be based on population? Will it be based on one per state or two per state, equal representation per state? From late June to late July, that five-week period, this whole idea of representation is debated again and again. It is brought up, it is debated from different perspectives. And something that I think is useful to come away from this with is that we're pointing toward the Great Compromise. The Great Compromise, also known as the Connecticut Compromise, wherein our bicameral legislature with different models of representation in each, that's the result of the Great Compromise. That's what we're pointing toward, and that's what we get to by the end of this five-week block. But what I think is important to come away from this with is the understanding that this didn't happen all at once. I think oftentimes the debate between the two plans and the resolution of that debate, the compromise that ended the debate, is treated like it was a moment. Like they debated the two plans and then someone said, hey, what about this? And they all went, okay, let's do that. And then suddenly we have a great compromise and then the, the Constitution Convention moves forward, never to come back to that issue. That is the farthest thing from the truth. If you read in Madison's notes, and you read the summaries that you can get to from the link in this episode's notes, you'll see that these issues keep coming up and that the final resolution only comes after the same topic has been debated by a number of different people from a number of different angles over a period of weeks. So the main issue during this block of time is it's the structure of Congress and it's how will representation be determined once that structure is settled. Now, there are other things that the founders deal with during this five-week block. The age requirement of 25 for the House and 30 for the Senate, those are determined. Uh, questions over how will these people be paid and from what funding sources? Will they be able to change their own pay? Will members of the House be able to concurrently hold other federal offices? The answer, by the way, is no. That's agreed to. Terms of service for the House and the Senate are also discussed. They move from three to two for the House. They move from nine to six for the Senate. 
And James Madison, in the closing days of June, provides an argument for that longer Senate uh, term of service. He says that the Senate is there, quote, to protect the people against the transient impressions into which they themselves may be led, unquote. Roger Sherman responds with an opposing argument saying that frequent elections are essential to providing for true representation for the people. And I, I think that we can make sense of both of these, that in order for a system to be representative of its people, there need to be representatives of the people, but those people also, the citizens, have to be able to voice their either uh, their support of or lack of support for their representatives. And so there needs to be regular, there need to be regular elections. Roger Sherman would say frequent elections in order that those in power truly are representative of not only the people, but what the people want at a given point in time. Madison argues later in Federalist 63 that there needs to be a, quote, cool and deliberate sense of the community, unquote. And so on the one hand, we have a, a valid demand for government to be immediately and readily um, responsive to what the people want. But then on the other hand, there's this argument for a longer-term perspective to let things play out to have a more, as we say, cool and deliberate sense instead of this immediately reactive sense. Suppose we could say that we are, the founders aimed to account for both of those things by having the House and having the Senate and having their, the election requirements and the terms that they serve different. Along these same lines, there's some discussion about maybe differentiation in powers between the two chambers of Congress. And throughout this constant discussion over the respective merits of different models of representation and also arguments that point back to the first act, uh, the alternative plans, where the founders debated this issue over, are they making a national government? Or are they making a federal government? Is this, a, is this going to be a government based on the people at large, kind of circumventing or, or, or vaulting over the states? Or is this going to be a compact between states? That is discussed as well. At the end of June, there in fact is a discussion over this issue or this idea of like national or federal and the idea comes up that this government that they are in the process of creating is actually both. It is partly national and partly federal. And we'll return to that argument, that idea later, especially when we get into uh, Federalist writings after the Constitution is finished. Now, the other major issue, I said representation and how it would inform the founders on how they would structure Congress. Representation is the big issue, and there are some smaller issues that I mentioned that they, they address. The other major issue that comes up on the coattails of representation is slavery. And actually, Madison makes the point that the differentiation, or rather the split between the states, is not so much over large versus small, population only, but he says it's really based around this idea of which states have slaves and which don't. He says that the states were divided into different interests, that is, the states represented at the Constitutional Convention, not by their difference of size, but by other circumstances, the most material of which resulted partly from climate, but principally from the effects of their having or not having slaves. So it's clear to the founders at the convention that it's, 
It's impossible to have the full discussion over representation without consideration of how are slaves counted, how are they considered, because that is going to have that structural decision is going to have serious legal and political implications that they can all see. Now, before the slavery issue really takes over, the convention has a tied vote over representation in the two chambers of Congress. And what they end up doing by a wide margin, a 10 to 1 vote, remember the, the vote is by state. So within each state delegation, the delegates from each state vote, and then the majority wins the vote for that state. And then the state votes as a single block having one vote only. So it deadlocks 5-5-1 over this idea of proportional representation in one and uh, equal representation in the other. But that tie vote is followed up by a 10 to 1 vote to refer this to a committee. And that committee is headed by Elbridge Jerry. The Jerry committee spends the next few days trying to hammer out a compromise. The interesting thing is that James Madison at this point was still wedded to the idea, still really believed in the idea of proportional representation in both chambers. If there were going to be two, there needed to be proportional representation in both. But it seems like, and you'll see this in the notes, you'll see this in the summaries, again, that you can go take a look at yourself, that the overall mood of the chamber had shifted away from two blocks that wanted one or the other. There were enough people in the middle who who recognized that maybe a compromise was possible. And so for the next few days, the Jerry Committee works on this, and then on July 5th submits its proposal, and this is its proposal, that representation in the first branch will be based on population, and the initial ratio is one representative for every 40,000 residents. The second point of it is representation in the second branch will be equal for each state. There's also another piece to this says that money bills to originate in the first branch, that is the House, are not subject to amendment in the second branch. So we have a representation decision for each branch, and we also have a, a little something about the respective powers in different areas for each of the two chambers of Congress. So at this point, on July 5th, we have the workings of the Great Compromise. However, we don't have the compromise yet because more debate ensues over the respective merits of the facets of that that plan. And again, it breaks down along lines of not only large versus small for population states, but slavery and the question of how will slaves be counted if there's going to be um, proportional representation in either of the chambers. Obviously, the question of how slaves are going to be counted has to be dealt with. So that starts to maybe not necessarily take over as the issue, but it it comes to the surface as the major point of contention within this issue of representation beyond just the theoretical. Finally, on July 16th, the Connecticut Compromise is accepted on a vote of five to four to one, which is, I find fascinating because we, again, the Great Compromise, the Connecticut Compromise is held up as this you know, again, implied as this moment, like they all agreed to it and then they move forward and they, they stop debating those issues, which they didn't. Um, but really, a 5-4-1 vote by the states, that's not exactly an overwhelming or, or, or a really powerful majority. Uh, is it a compromise or is it a principled compromise? I guess we could, we could debate that. The point, though, is that the, the, the broad outlines of the structure and the representation models that we have in Congress now are pretty much established in that vote 
or by the vote on 16 July of 1787. The next several days see the debate turn its focus toward the presidency. How does the executive look? Uh, What is it made up of? What kinds of powers does it have? Can it veto acts of Congress? Can Congress respond in any way, uh, shape, or form to a presidential veto or an executive veto, whatever we're going to call this, this person in terms of title of office? So this goes on for for several days. This second act of the Constitutional Convention, we can say, comes to a close on July 26th, and that's when the convention adjourns with the creation of a five-member committee of detail, as well as some interesting votes like a single seven-year term for the president. Obviously, we didn't end up sticking with that. And so this act closes with the Committee of Detail being created and charged with the responsibility of putting together a workable draft of everything that had been to that point decided. And I think this is worth uh, reflecting on and thinking about. There's so much debate, okay, for over a month and a half. There are so many issues that have been brought up and, and things agreed on either by wide margins or by, you know, the smallest majorities. And so the Committee of Detail, it's their job to not only assemble the document as agreed to at that point, but to present it back to the convention in such a form that will hopefully enable more focused debate and progress. And so the convention adjourns from July 27th through August 6th while the Committee of Detail does its work, which is where we will pick up in our next episode, Act 3, the convention considering the Committee of Detail's report. Thanks, as always, for listening to this companion podcast to AmericanFounding.org. You can find documents, essays, articles, art, maps, all related to the American founding, especially the Constitutional Convention at AmericanFounding.org. And there's a link directly to the summarized notes that were the source material for this episode in this episode's show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening.